Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi and welcome to Cross Section. I'm Jo Evans. Fun fact, I've been asked over the last year quite a few times whose voice is that that does the Cross Section introduction soundbite that we play at the start of every episode. Well, I can tell you exclusively that it is in fact me but me with a very, very bad cold. And it would seem that that might be an annual occurrence because I am once again struck down with the lurgy. Um, So I might sound a bit more recognisable to that voice on the introduction today, but I'm being very brave and powering through. Today, I'm joined by Danny and Peter. Danny, are you well? I'm I'm reasonably well. I've yeah, I've got a bit of a sore throat and I'm speaking at events on both Saturday and Sunday this weekend, so hoping my voice holds up. Peter, are, are you well? I am good, but I'm playing five-a-side football tonight or some sort of indoor football, and this might be the last time I say I'm well. I haven't played this for like 10 years and I'm getting nervous as it gets closer, but it should be fun. It's all in the warm-up, Peter. It's all in the warm-up. Um, so I have a question for both of you. How would you feel if the entirety of your personal WhatsApp history between each other was published for all to see? So here's a question. I don't think I've ever sent Peter a WhatsApp message. Uh, I was wondering about that when you just said when you restricted it to ours. I think that's possibly true. But even messages. So I was saying, (laughs) I I told the total lawyer in me, I'm so cautious what I write down. My old boss used to be a newspaper editor. And he, was, he would say, go on the radio, say what you like for the organisation. But as soon as I tweeted something, he wanted to see it before it went out. I thought it was the weirdest thing. But now I remind my daughter that the things we probably used to say about teachers on the back of the bus are now the things they WhatsApp. And that's written down and somebody screenshots. So I was like, you got to be super careful. So I'll say things about Danny, but I'll never WhatsApp him. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll say things about Joe but not WhatsApp them to each excellent, other. Excellent, excellent. I wouldn't do that, Johnny. That <laughs> That's the sign of a healthy team. This is, of course, in reference to um, Matt Hancock. Another, uh, it feels like another in a long series of events and news stories around Matt Hancock. Um, but what do, you, what do you make of this? There's interesting questions around integrity here on both sides. I find the whole thing absolutely fascinating that he gave... 2.3 million words worth of WhatsApp messages to a journalist to help him write his book. And then this journalist has broken the NDA and given them all to the Daily Telegraph, who are now publishing them. Uh, drip, drip, drip. Um, one side of the story got spun through the book. Another side is now getting pushed out uh, through the Telegraph. Um, we're not going to read 2.3 million words. So it's going to be hard to really know the truth. From what I've seen, some of the conversations seem like they're trying to make difficult decisions in very challenging contexts, quickly changing circumstances that perhaps didn't always add up to the confidence they then presented in the press conferences that they then showed um, at five o'clock every evening. Um, So I have some sympathy for the quick decision making, but then also I think it exposes some of the lack of information and lack of certainty about what they were doing that was at the heart of government at that time. It's like a real-time snapshot, though. It's fascinating. And because they couldn't communicate in normal ways, they were doing everything by WhatsApp that they're usually done by conversation. So I, I think it's very revealing in terms of human nature. 
Uh, and also just reality. Like, I think we sometimes have unrealistic expectations of what happens. These are human beings at the core of it all. That doesn't justify their behavior, but it's a reminder of the realities of living in a, in a fallen, broken, messed up world. Yeah, well, I'll be honest. My main thought as I saw it was, I am not ready to talk about COVID and lockdowns again. So that is why I'm restricting it to the first four minutes of this week's podcast. <laughs> um, moving on to what I would argue is more current news. Um, big story for Northern Ireland this week. Um, I've now gone blank. What is it? The Windsor Treaty? Windsor Agreement? Windsor Framework. Windsor Framework? <laughs> wow. Oh. So this is, it's the point two, two-parter to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, Peter, can you outline for us just really quickly what the new framework is? No, nobody can. Nobody <laughs> knows. Like that's why it's a framework. It's got loads of documents underneath. So, um, and it's a big story for everybody. Just to be clear, not just Northern Ireland. I would say, of course, somebody Absolutely. from Northern Ireland. What is? I mean, there's two levels you can look at this at very quickly. I mean, it's it's about sovereignty. It's about identity. It's about everything. We had the shooting uh, last week in Northern Ireland, just reminding us of how on the knife edge things can be. We don't have a government there. But it's also about really practical reality. The pizza example I may have used before. Every pizza that comes into Northern Ireland, you have to get a separate piece of paper for the cheese, a separate piece of paper for the pepperoni topping, then for the pizza base, everything. And we're like, we're trying to rectify that. So broadly, it looks like we've got a decent deal on the table. Big question is, is will Northern Ireland's politicians accept it? Is this as good as it can get? Um, and are we going to get a unique, wonderful status into both markets, the UK and the EU? Or are we going to still remain the slightly odd child that we are? Um, and how do we navigate that? Well, that's just the reality, but it has huge implications for the future of Northern Ireland and for peace on this island, potentially. Well, that's that's what Rishi Nunak... Rishi, Rishi Nunak? Rishi Sunak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what Rishi Sunak kept emphasising, wasn't he? That, that Northern Ireland has a unique... is in a unique position. Um, but do you think, looking forward, as much as you can guess do you think this is going to be that northern ireland goes into a, a period of being more stable more peaceful perhaps i think that's the hope most people on the ground want clarity they just want to know what the rules are uh, they may be a pain they may be more awkward there will be more not there'll be more paperwork than there was before brexit and everything but we we can deal with that when you got the clarity of what happens can we get medicines can we get fruit and veg it's literally that practical at times um, but then the hope is you can build from there because this has been a big distraction and not having a government's a huge deal. How can we make any decisions about anything? So we, you know, our, our healthcare system's way worse than yours and, and the, the rest of GB is bad. We need on the ground stuff right now. I think it probably does set the basis for that. There's my prophetic prediction, crystal ball that Danny told us not to do at the start of this season. I think we'll get a deal over the line and hopefully we'll get our government back. And that's really important because there's a load of other issues that really do need to be resolved um, and they'll take time and the last question I'll fire at you um, pegging you as the expert of all things Northern Ireland um, but but why does what on the surface looks like a geopolitical issue why does that sometimes translate to a social religious issue across Ireland yeah, it's a good question, and it's a, like it's a 400-year-old question in a sense. Like This goes to sovereignty and identity. This goes to different communities within Northern Ireland. It's too simple to say Protestant and Catholic. 
but there is within that a strong linkage between that and nationalist uh, and unionist and where allegiances lie towards uh, Ireland and towards the UK. And so those questions get very contested and they do then intermingle uh, religious identity, political identity, become intertwined. And we, in our work with Evangelical Answer, work with church leaders across the board to really try and do something interesting. 25 years on, one of my colleagues, David Smith, is is uh, really looking at how we set tables and literally gather people together around tables and do something. So the churches have often tried to lead in reconciliation. We have a peace process that has still got a very fractured and unstable peace beneath it. So that's why we need uh, this agreement or something like it to work, because it's just another excuse to go back to old lines and is really unhelpful. So hopefully a genuine prayer is and I would value prayer from others and this is like we need stability in Northern Ireland to build a future. Danny do you think this could be the end of Brexit chat in in terms of politics and go I mean I, as I say that I know that's not going to be the case but is this the end of a a long very polarized conversation? I think my hope is is that it's a significant step forward on that that the the polarization and some of the and the disagreement around Brexit hasn't uh, eased in the last seven years. Uh, so my hope is is that what we actually start to see is that while people will still have views on Brexit, still have opinions, actually it's not being used as a wedge to uh, divide people in politics and in society, and perhaps the way it has been in the last few years. I um I was listening to was it PMQs or was it after that when um, this Windsor, what's the word, framework, Windsor framework was being discussed and Keir Starman representing the Labour Party sort of said, well, we don't like this and we don't like this, but the Labour Party are going to support this framework. And I naively, I was anticipating rupturous applause in the in the House of Commons as all sides come together and agree to work together for a brighter future. That didn't quite ha- happen, but um, we wait and see. Moving on to our second story. Kate Forbes has been in the news frequently um, in the last couple of weeks in reference to the race for leader of the Scottish National Party in Scotland. Um, and this week there was a Theos report. Theos, a think tank that focuses on religion and society, has released a report essentially looking on the impact that um, a politician's faith might have in the way that people vote. Um, Danny, I know you've dug around on the numbers on this. Could you tell us some highlights? Yes. So Theos commissioned some research with YouGov, who polled uh, 2,000 adults in Great Britain uh, to ask them how what they thought. And the main question was, do certain views or attributes, are they, should they should people with these views not be allowed to hold a top government job? So it covered issues around nuclear disarmament. So um, it said that so 23% think that people who support unilateral nuclear disarmament should not be allowed to have a top government job. But perhaps interesting to our um, particular point here is around the views of around same-sex marriage, around abortion, and particularly as to whether evangelical Christians could hold top government jobs. So the headline number is is that um, one in five people say that anyone with a religious faith um, should not be allowed to hold a top government job. Um, 
which I find quite remarkable, really. And when you ask about particular faiths, um, evangelical Christians are the most likely to be objected to, 19% say that, and then slightly fewer object to Orthodox Jews, Muslims or Catholics. Yeah, so this was interesting. So as you just said, people are more in favour of having someone who's Jewish, Muslim or Catholic um, leading them than an evangelical Christian. And the highest um, should not hold a top government job the highest in that category was for those who would privatise the NHS. So 63% of people said that people with that viewpoint should not hold a top government job. Um, Peter, do you think that there's much to read into that about, what does that say about the state of society in the UK? Well, I think two two things are, one is that uh, the NHS is the real religion of the UK. So if you don't, if you don't agree with that and it, that it should be free to all the point of view, then you're, you're basically unfit for public office is the view of most people. So that's just intriguing. But to Danny's point, I mean, that a fifth don't think that anybody of religious views should hold a senior position is straightforward, just religious discrimination. Imagine it was any other protected characteristic. That to me would be interesting that if it was anybody who was disabled, imagine a fifth of the population saying that or anybody from the LGBT community and saying, oh, you can't hold a top government job. That would be front page headline news. In a sense, that's that just kind of rolled out at the bottom of the story. And you're like, that, that's that's massive. And then which one is it? I don't know if it's because so they'd be more comfortable with the Muslim leader, maybe because Sadiq Khan, as, a, as a, I think I would describe him as a fairly secular Muslim, they maybe go, well, that's okay. And I mean, Boris identified as a Catholic to the surprise of his own father, I think at one point, who thought he'd been baptized in the Church of England. That was intriguing. So they maybe have models that say that. So when they hear evangelical, we've got to think about why are we at the bottom? Is that because of the way we've articulated our faith? Because it should be good news for all people. So there's a challenge, I think, for us as Christians, as well as for society and the inherent discrimination against all religions that I do think is problematic. In, particularly in reference to same-sex marriage question, there's quite a disparity across the different nations. Um, why why do we think that might be? Well, I, Danny might want to come in too, but I definitely observed that it's slightly um, different in Scotland. Um, so I think it's Wales is the most kind of objection to this, uh, whereas Scotland, so uh, if you oppose same-sex marriage, Wales basically says not in government, shouldn't be in at all, whereas Scotland has the highest number. And this survey was actually run just right on the cusp of the whole Cape Ford things happening. So I just wonder, and it is conjecture, I can't prove this yet, I just wonder, has she moved the dial already? Because people are like, well, we quite like her. She's been clear about her views and because they want her to lead. And is it possible? I mean, I do think it, it, it comes down to individual stories leading in this space will create the space. And one of the biggest things I do think Kate Forbes has done is ultimately kind of enlarge the playing field for people coming after. Tim Barron did round one of that. We interviewed him a few months ago last season. Um, and he would say, I think himself, it was tough the first round for him, but he enlarged the playing field. Now she's come and enlarged it even more, I think. And I think that's really helpful. She might just have moved the dial on that number. So so essentially that she's she's comforted people or reassured people that having an evangelical Christian who might who might hold to certain personal views around same-sex marriage doesn't mean that they'll have a leader who will impose those views on everyone. Um, Danny, go on. Well, I think sometimes that's what's being read into it, but I think we might want to come back to that. I think that potentially complicates things as well because it requires almost a privatisation 
or a categorization of someone's faith in a way that isn't always particularly helpful. Um, but I think the numbers are interesting between England, Wales and Scotland. And the numbers, the numbers are small and we start getting into subsets and statistical significance. And I don't want to speak too much, but both on the evangelical question and on the same-sex marriage, there is a notable difference between Scotland and both England and Wales where they are more accepting of an evangelical Christian in Scotland and more accepting of someone who would oppose same-sex marriage. What's also interesting, though, is that many more people would oppose someone who opposes same-sex marriage than would oppose an evangelical Christian. So there is then this discrepancy, which I find, I find interesting, that, yeah, one in five would say, if you're an evangelical Christian, you shouldn't hold this view, but one in two would say, if you oppose same-sex marriage... You, you shouldn't be able to hold a top job. Well, and a quarter, I mean, a quarter of the population think if you oppose Brexit, you shouldn't be allowed a top job. Like So it, it goes into our ability to hold different views and to reconcile those. So again, I think Kate Forbes was quite interesting because she said on same-sex marriage, that's a settled issue, it's been decided. She has her views but wouldn't impose them. But she was clear on the gender. She has a set of views that she would look to change the law on and would want to impose those. And then when it came to, I think it was assisted dying, she said it would be a uh, conscience and so, again, I think she showed good nuance in how, I don't think there is a, I, I don't think Danny's saying this, but in case somebody picked up, I don't think she's arguing for that privatisation, but there is a nuance in how those views come into the public square. But the Brexit piece and climate denial is another one where people said, if you deny climate, I think 61% said you shouldn't be allowed any senior leadership position. It's a reminder that we are struggling to deal with differing points of view and how we respect what I would call a plural public square, we have a plurality, a range of ideas, and how do we live together with those different ideas? And the current theory is basically we'll just banish them, don't allow them to have a job, and that's not sustainable. That's a real problem. Yeah, and there's there's two two things here. One is how do we how do we deal with difference in public life? How do we deal with the fact that people will think differently and that should be something that we recognise as beneficial to our politics, having people with different ideas and different views. Now, um, we recognise diversity as a positive thing in public life. We should recognise that the diversity of viewpoints is beneficial in public life. We don't, we don't reserve seats in Parliament based on uh, people's different characteristics, and we shouldn't say, right, we have this many people with this view or that many people with that view. But we can look and say, actually, it's beneficial to have a range of views in public life. That is healthy. That benefits us. I think the other thing, coming back to the question of how you then apply beliefs into practice, it is nuanced and it is complex. Uh, different people on different issues will take different approaches to how you take what we believe and then turn that into something that makes sense in public. Because I think what we believe and what we hold actually should be good for all of society. But how we translate that into public life will vary issue to issue. So uh, that that brings me, I was thinking when we um, talk about Christians in positions of leadership, quite often we refer to the book of Daniel and, um, you know, in a, in a Christian context. And we'll talk about how Daniel had his red lines. He had his things that he, you know, he took on um, a, a different name and he was willing to eat different foods, um, but he wouldn't worship a foreign god, things like that. 
how how do you think a Christian in a position of public leadership decides what their red lines are, decides what are the policies that they are going to push for the Christian the Christian viewpoint or the, the Christian way of approaching things? With great difficulty. <laughs> um, what? So you don't have the answer for us, Peter? Chris Wright uh, has, has a great book uh, about Old Testament ethics. But one of the things he says is some of what it was in the Old Testament applied to the land and some of it applied to the people, God's people. And what he's distinguished between some things were good for everybody. He would say something like Sabbath rest. That's just good for everybody. And there are some things that are unique to God's people about rules for temple worship and even giving a tithe. You don't insist that everybody gives the tithe. I wouldn't go into politics and say that. That's for the God's people who worship God and, and, and have a relationship with God. But I do think rest every day is good for everybody. One million people working on a Sunday are single parents and don't get another chance with their kids. We want rest at a collective time. I think that's good for the, the land, if you like, in the broad sense. So Chris distinguishes between a set of rules that God gave that are good for all of humanity and a unique set of rules that were for his people. And we've got to be careful. So that's one distinction I would seek to make in trying to engage in politics. But I'd also want to acknowledge that it's tough to know where some of those lines are. And we've got to respect people making those decisions. We might not always agree with where they've landed on that, but they are trying to bring their faith into the public yeah. square. But Danny, no doubt, has oh, the definitive answer. answer. Absolutely. I think there's there are the things that we would want to advocate for and argue for in terms of legislation and say this should be in the law. But there are other things where we would say this is good, like whether it's to do with children being raised in stable families. You can argue that's good, but you're not necessarily going to pass a law that insists that that's the case. Um, so I think there are things that we would want to argue as that are good for society, but not necessarily should be introduced or pushed through the law i think the other part and this is usually where red lines come in is when where would you resign what are the things that you would resign over so it's not necessarily about the things that you want to impose on others but it's where are other ideas being imposed that you can't in good conscience be a party to and i think people will land in different places christians often who've been in positions of public leadership reflect on where they can see that they're still able to have an influence are they still able to influence the decision-making, influence what's happening? And while they feel they are able to, they think that there is a value and a role for them staying involved in the process. But actually other people say, well, if publicly I'm being attached to these decisions, then I need to go. I need to walk away from this. And I think knowing those decisions and how to make them, it's a crucial art. Um, the, the phrase faithful compromise, I think, is really helpful to think that actually there are times we compromise and there are times we compromise in a faithful way. Thanks, Danny. Well, as I say every week, you can follow along to the cross-section conversation throughout the week. You don't just have to wait for the episode to drop every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter at EA UK News, on Instagram, Evangelical Alliance. And you can also email us, get directly involved in the conversation by emailing cross.sectioneauk.org. We read all the emails that come in. Finally, I mentioned last week, and it is ongoing, that we are running a listeners survey. We want to know who you are. We want to know what, uh, how long you've been listening to the podcast and what you want us to be talking about more. You can find the survey through a link that will be posted in the episode description, but also on the cross-section webpage. 
And just so you know, there's no contact information required. There'll be no follow-up emails. Peter, I have a question for you. What should someone do if they want to be more involved in the work of the Evangelical Alliance? Oh, that's a great question, Joe. Uh, and they should uh, become a member is probably the simplest answer to that. We love your support. We love people to get behind us. Evangelical Alliance is the largest and the oldest organization representing evangelical Christians. That's who brings you cross-section. That's who allows us to have this fun each week and, and do this. Um, so we have hundreds of organizational members, thousands of church members, and tens of thousands of individual members. And for as little as a price of a cup of coffee a week, a month, sorry, you can become a member, three pounds a month, uh, become a member of the Evangelical Alliance and get to support our work. So just go to eauk.org on the website, click to become a member. And not only do you get to support us, we get to add your voice when we're engaging in the media and the public square. And that's the biggest win for us uh, to bring Christians together and to make Jesus known in the public square. So there's my pitch for membership, Joe. Thanks very much. On Monday evening, BBC's Panorama brought a new documentary called Crisis Pregnancy Centres, assessing what really goes on in these centres and trying to get the inside scoop. What did you two make of the documentary? Well, I'm going to interrupt and flip it because I've read about it, but you two, I know, have seen it. And Joe, you're always asking the question. So let, let why don't you tell us what you thought of it first? I found it, if I'm honest, not surprising. I went in um, knowing the BBC are known for having a certain dialogue around the issue of abortion. Um, I don't quite know in how recent history, but in recent history, they don't refer to people um, who are pro-life. They refer to people who are anti-abortion. I was aware of that going in and yeah, it, it, it lived up to that expectation. It was a very one-sided documentary they found 57 of these crisis pregnancy centers 32 of which made religious affiliations clear 20 which when given an anonymous phone call provided impartial advice 34 referred to the nhs um, according to the documentary 21 of these centers gave worrying advice but they didn't go into what that meant and the documentary only actually showed three of these pregnancy crisis pregnancy centers, um, which wasn't very flattering. These three pregnancy centers that they spoke to um, either didn't come across very compassionate or seemed to be slightly misleading on the facts, um, which, you know, is good and right to call people up when they are acting in an improper way. But it wasn't, it, it wasn't a... Um, a fully representative view of of crisis no, pregnancy centres. That was my thought. I think thought. that's exactly, that was my takeaway, that what I saw in some of the clips were things that I would be concerned about. And I think we should advocate for good practice and we should encourage good practice. But the problem is, I don't have confidence that what the BBC showed was an accurate representation of what actually was goes on in those centres. Um, and I think that's what concerns me. One of the centres um, has published um, the emails that they received from the BBC and their full response to the BBC, only a fraction of which was um, then broadcast on air um, in the programme. So I think there is always a lot more to this. And I think that's the challenge that all of the experts that were invited on, all of the people commenting on it, were 
critical of these pregnancy advice centres and they gave very short scope for the reply from any of the centres that they covered. Yeah, so just to be clear, they went into these crisis pregnancy centres with a hidden microphone on um, on the journalist's front. Um, she would go in saying she was pregnant, you know, and that's a, that's that's what investigative journalism can and, and sometimes should be, that it's it's undercover. But it was just interesting that in conversations with people who were representing um, abortion clinics, it was you know, a fully set up, prepared, open conversation. And there wasn't any of those conversations with people from the crisis pregnancy centres. I think even in having discussions, I remember talking to BBC about the point you made earlier about the uh, language used, pro-life, pro-choice, and in fact, they won't say pro-life, they use anti-abortion. And just talking to the head of news locally about that at one stage, and they were kind of like, so what's the problem? Like, that's fine. Why do you find that? I was like, because pro-life and pro-choice feel to us like equal, anti-abortion or pro-abortion, that's a different way, or don't give any. I mean, they were kind of like, how do we resolve this? And I said, well, just describe groups by their name. Why do you have to put this kind of adjective in front of them? Why do you have to load the conversation? You know that's loading, but it was almost like they were just like, I, I don't even see the problem. And it's one of the reasons when we started uh, Both Lives Matter, which is uh, something within the work of EA that looks at this, the name itself was designed in a way to kind of try and shape the conversation straight away and say, actually, there's more than one life involved here. They all matter. We want to have a conversation in a different way and reframe it. It's it's more than simply pro-life or pro-choice. We've got to find ways to have these difficult conversations in a better way and be a little bit more honest. It did feel like a sting. Would they do the same on the other side? Probably not. Do they have an agenda? It seems like they tipped their hand far too, obviously. And you're like, where's the unbiased journalism? Let's have the conversation, but let's have it honestly. So we've talked about being a bit more honest, but how do we make this conversation about being more uh, than just being fair? I've been thinking a lot about how do Christians respond in conversations about this, because we don't want to do what the BBC have done and just paint the other side of the argument as evil or baddies. As Christians, we know that we're all sinners, we're all broken, and we don't have the right to be judging others or condemning. And we want to somehow be speaking love into this debate. So I was trying to think, you know, that the agenda in this Panorama documentary is so clear, but what is their goal? Why would they say the things that they say? And it just struck me that if you hold precious that women should not have to have babies that were unplanned or or unwanted if you hold firmly that that is a fundamental right and good thing then of course you'd want to deny um you'd go to great lengths to deny that those fetuses the the unborn child were in fact children um i thought it was interesting that one of the experts consulted said that when one of these crisis pregnancy centres showed a woman an ultrasound or was offering her an ultrasound, he referred to that as deceitful. I just thought that was so interesting. How can a medical scan that does not manipulate facts but plainly displays them be called lying? And one of the other experts um, representing an abortion clinic said, it's not a baby when you've got a choice. Yeah, I found that that particularly... uh well, revealing the idea that you can kind of play those kind of almost 
kind of games with language and say, oh, well, if there's a choice, it's not a baby. If you want it, it is a baby. Uh, so I thought, I thought that was fascinating. And, but I think what I find uh, really challenging and what I came away from listening and watching the documentary with was, I think I really want to encourage uh, Christians who are involved in this work to do this excellently. Um, and I, I don't trust how the pregnancy crisis centres were portrayed, but I do think there is a challenge for them to go above and beyond in terms of the excellence of the care that they do provide for women and that they do provide for unborn children. And I think actually that's what we want to encourage. We want to encourage uh, the best possible care. And I think in doing that, hopefully, one, we can provide a context where if the BBC want to come in and do sting operations, actually what they are showing is really great, compassionate care. Um, and I think that is, that is a challenge. And I think we have to recognise where there will be attempts to, to do the kind of gotcha footage, to do the thing that makes a quick and easy headline. But I, I, I think we should be encouraged um, and those involved in this work should be encouraged to provide the best possible care. Peter. And the reality is these centers do exist because people find themselves in crisis pregnancies. That, that's why they're there. And people who are deeply compassionate and loving in this moment want to get alongside women who are really struggling in this situation. Uh, so like you, Danny, I think it's a, it's a vital piece of work. Uh, and, and we know people who are involved in that, in that area and um, because for all sorts of reasons, people find themselves suddenly in, in the crisis. That's that's where the name comes from. So I think it's really important they do this as well as they can, but that they do exist uh, and, and that we hear from them in this moment. That's a really good point. And I think what was most disappointing about the documentary is that it failed to acknowledge all the thousands of women that seek to access these crisis pregnancy centres because they don't know what they want and they want to understand all the options available to them, the ins and the outs. And they're so grateful for the services that these places provide. As I said earlier, I've been in touch with Choices in London, which describes themselves as a charity that provides support to women and their families during pregnancy and beyond. They work with women in prison as well as in community centres, offering counselling and practical support services. Their services are delivered in line with their ethos of working to provide professional standards and in line with the British Association of Counselling and Psychotherapy, of which they are organisational members. I asked them to share with us some stories of women who have gone to their centre in crisis and found help. And so I thought I'd end today's podcast by just sharing a few of those. Quote, I thought it was fantastic. I'm incredibly grateful for how seriously you took me and the situation I'm in and how non-judgmental the space was. It's surprisingly hard to find that elsewhere, even in other counselling spaces, and I could really feel that throughout. It was so valuable. In fact, all of them use this word, non-judgmental. Non-judgmental, supportive, non-judgmental, safe space to talk about my feelings. It felt so useful to speak and talk about it without feeling judged. My counsellor was non-judgmental and really helped me think about my situation and how I feel in a caring and compassionate way. So I wanted to give a bit of voice to the good work that these centres are doing. And that's it from us this week at Cross Section. Just a final reminder to do our listeners survey, either through the episode description 
or through the cross-section webpage. And I hope to see you next week feeling a lot better. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross-Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.